Now, will you open your Bibles, please? That's the way we like to see them here, open. Right, Brother Hannah? <laughs> we want to see them open. Open it to Ephesians 6, 10 to 17, where we find what might properly be called Paul's call to arms. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against wicked spirits in heavenly places. That's the word epuranius there, the very highest heavens. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the, pres the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now this call to arms is followed with a plea for intercessory prayers for all in God's armed forces and particularly for himself. Notice verse 18. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I might open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now I'd like to begin by saying something about the nature of the conflict we're in. Now mark well, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, as was that of the children of Israel as they strove to possess the promised land. We struggle or wrestle against Satan and his hosts, the wicked spirits in the heavenlies. And as the Canaanites used every stratagem to hinder Israel from possessing the land of Canaan, so Satan and his hosts uh, try with their wiles and devices to prevent us from occupying our position in the heavenlies. But notice too that the conflict under discussion is not primarily a struggle against the old nature 
or against temptation to worldly lusts. It has basically to do rather with the proclamation of Paul's God-given message of grace. Read it carefully and you'll see that that is the truth. That message that Satan so bitterly hates and opposes, that's what he's dealing with here. This is evident from the passage itself where we read that we wrestle or struggle against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Think of that. Let that, that phrase sink in. We wrestle against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Those who want to keep the world in darkness, we wrestle against them. Thus the apostle requests their prayers for all the saints and especially for himself, that utterance may be given me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus our conflict is not a personal matter, beloved, but a war being waged by Satan and his hosts against the soldiers of Christ as they proclaim the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. In our weakness, thank God, he provides a complete armor. By the way, the words whole armor are one word in the Greek, panoply. And it's the word where we get our English word panoply from. The word panoply means a complete armor, nothing missing, with the emphasis on the word complete because from that word in this connection we use the word for anything that is a complete covering or a complete provision. That's how the word panoply is used. So, in our weakness, God provides a full, a complete set of armor for our protection. And that's the only reason we at all can survive, the only way we can survive in this spiritual conflict. Now, verses 10 and 11 sound very much like the words of a commander challenging his army at the prospect of major battles to come. We face a formidable foe, he said, but you have been provided with a complete set of armor. Nothing is missing, so enter into the fray in God's strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But as encouraging as it is that God provides us, with a complete set of armor. So important is it that we put on every piece lest Satan get an advantage of us. Put on the whole armor of God, he says, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Thus we learn again that all God's blessings for us today become ours only 
by grace through faith. Grace and faith are always elevated to their highest in this present dispensation. He provides the complete armor by his grace, but we must receive every piece and put it on by faith. This is important for we face a fearful foe and we are so weak. I can say that from experience now. I don't think I've ever known weakness like I've known it in this past year. I say to my wife someday, if I just weren't so weak, if the Lord would give me some strength back, well, he will when it's his time to. And uh, when this body is changed, he surely will. But the point is, we dare not say, I know myself, that I'm never tempted to this, so I don't need this piece of armor. Oh, no. If we do, we will surely give Satan the advantage. He'll know just where to strike. And we will fall before the wiles of the devil. Let us never forget, beloved, that this armor has been provided because of our limitations, because of our weakness. For it's only in recognizing this that we can stand in the battle. It's only as we recognize our weakness that we can feel his strength. Bravado? Oh, that doesn't count for anything in this battle. Flexing our muscles, throwing out our chest and saying, I'm good. No, no, not in this battle. For Paul himself testifies, when I'm weak, then am I strong. And he fought the good fight of the faith in the Lord's assurance that, as he said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. How true. When we're strong, beloved, in ourselves, we tend to become self-confident. While when we're weak, we lead the harder and pray the more. And therein lies our strength. We must see that we are nothing. Moses, Gideon, Samson. Why in the world does everybody call Samson a strong man? You ask some boy or girl, remember who Sam? Yeah, he was that strong man in the old. He wasn't strong. No, he wore the, the, the Nazarite uh, head of hair, if you please. The Nazarite vow. A, a sign of a woman, the sign of a weaker vessel. He wasn't strong every time. Read the record. Every time the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And that's the way it is with us, beloved. We are not strong in ourselves. But thank God, when the Spirit of the Lord uses us, then, then we're strong. Well, as I was saying, Moses, Gideon, Samson, David, John Bunyan, John Wesley, John Calvin, and the martyrs of all born witness to this fact. Verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able. Otherwise you're not able. I am not able. We are not able to withstand in the time of crisis in the evil day. 
and having done all to stand, he says, stand, therefore. <laughs> Notice in verse 11, he says we need the armor to stand against the wiles of the devil. <clears throat> but here in verse 13, he says we need it to withstand in the evil day, in the day of crisis, in the day of particular and more pointed warfare. Stand, he says. Withstand. Many people will stand, you know, when nobody's against them. <laughs> Many people have said, oh, I stand for this, oh, 100%, but nobody's fighting them. But to withstand in the evil day, in the time of crisis, and then, having done all, Really, the sense of that last part is having done all to be found still standing. <clears throat> if Satan doesn't use his wiles against us, beloved, if we never experience an evil day, it must mean that we're no threat to it, and he can safely leave us alone, and that's too bad. God pity those Christians, and they're all too many, uh, who or whom Satan can safely leave alone. They don't much or make much of Christ. They don't witness to the riches of his grace. Business, yes, Christians I'm talking about. Business, sports, worldly pleasures, and so on keep them occupied. So why need Satan lift a finger against them? But those who diligently preach Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, they merit his special attention. And I say this with special love in my heart for this group here tonight. I know the surely the great majority of you want the church to get back to the place where the soldiers of Christ are standing for the preaching of Jesus Christ according to that precious mystery. And uh, it's just for this reason, beloved, that each one of you, you, each one, and I must put on the whole armor of God. Look at verse 13 again, please. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, <clears throat> and having done all, to be found still standing. You remember that wonderful story in Second Samuel 23, verses 9 and 10. That story about Eliezer, the son of Dodo, and the great victory he won for Israel. He had been one of those nobodies who had come to David for help in trouble and distress and poverty. But later, he became one of David's mighty men. And here we find him all alone fighting hundreds of Philistines until his hand was weary. But he couldn't stop. It says, and he couldn't stop, for his hand 
clave unto his sword. And the Lord brought a great victory for Israel that day. Oh, that in our struggle with the powers of darkness we might be found, after all is over, still standing, sword in hand. Did you notice that in verses 11 and 14, the word stand occurs four times. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. <coughs> Take unto you the whole armor that you may be able to withstand when that evil day comes and you are assaulted. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. There's no reason to turn and flee. There's no reason to be intimidated, beloved. God says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, that's something, isn't it? You resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I know that's James 4, 7, but this is not a dispensational matter. For Peter and Paul both heartily concur in the idea or the fact that we should resist the devil. Now it begins to deal with the individual pieces of armor and their importance to us. 1. Verse 14. Having your loins girt about with truth. The soldiers of the Roman army wore wide belts which helped to stabilize them and make them feel more ready for the fray. And he says he's given us such a piece of armor. A wide belt where it's girt about with truth. That's what that belt is. It's our sincere desire only to know the truth and to make only the truth known. It will be to us Christian soldiers as a supporting girdle about our loins to know we have the truth. <coughs> Paul could speak with us such boldness because he knew he had the truth about the gospel of the grace of God and the rest of the revelation made to him. Luther could battle so bravely because he knew he had the truth about justification by faith. Pastor J.C. O'Hare could be so outspoken because he knew he had the truth where the theological confusion and division in the church was concerned. Paul and these his followers had their loins girt about with truth. This is why they could speak with such spiritual power. 2, number verse 14. Having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now by grace, we believers have the assurance that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God has made Christ to be our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 Believers are righteous because they're in Christ, the righteous one. That's how positionally we are righteous in the sight of God. 
But this passage is not speaking of our position in Christ. It's a very practical part of his epistle. The apostle writes here in a context of spiritual warfare. And everything like in the end of most of his letters is very practical. He speaks of a righteousness provided to the believer by grace but which we must put on by faith. It's personal righteousness he speaks of. <clears throat> the breastplate prank covers all the vital parts of the body, the heart, the lungs, the liver, and so on. But a believer who lives a careless, permissive, inconsistent life leaves himself wide open to sudden death by one of the fiery darts of the wicked one. He will suffer sudden death, not as a believer. It's not that he'll be lost again, but as a soldier. Many a champion of, of the faith has fallen in the feet. Excuse me, I need a little water here. Has fallen in the field because he was not a righteous man. He was one, he was not one who could be trusted or respected. How many examples we've had of this, beloved, in these sad days. So it behooves us to search ourselves carefully and sincerely in the sight of God that we may be able to say with Paul, for our gospel came unto you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. <coughs> Excuse me. You see, Paul refers back to his life among them, his manner of life among them, and gives the explanation for the power with which he spoke. <clears throat> Number three, verse 15. What is the apostle's meaning when he says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? What does he mean? by your feet shod with that preparation. Well, for help, perhaps we can turn to Isaiah 52, verse 7. That's Isaiah 52, verse 7. <clears throat> How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith to Zion, Thy God reigneth. <coughs> you don't have to fear, He is on the throne. Well, the illustration seems simple enough. Here, let's say, is war and desolation. But yonder, yonder we see the approach of a messenger preceding armies of deliverance coming 
to put down the rebellion and bring peace and safety again. And as the beleaguered, the besieged, see the approach of this messenger and ambassador of peace and the armies of deliverance behind him coming along the mountains afar off, they say, what a beautiful sight. Wouldn't we say the same? Here we've been, an army under siege. But oh, there comes an ambassador. There comes a message of grace uh, preceding the armies of God. What a beautiful sight. How beautiful are the feet of that messenger and the marching feet of those soldiers, those armies of peace and salvation. This is the simple, or the simile, I should say, that Paul uses to illustrate our position as believers. True, we're ambassadors and soldiers on enemy territory, but our aim is not to win over our enemies. Our aim is to win them. We come to bring the enemy the very best news that he could possibly hear, a free offer of reconciliation through the death of Christ, through the death of his son. He paid the price, and now on the basis of that price paid, offers us full reconciliation and a full amnesty, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1, 7. Thank God we may be shod for the longest journey over the roughest territory to bring this good news of peace to sinners, yes, enemies of God everywhere. <clears throat> How glad later are those whom this blessed message has overcome, who have been conquered by it. As the victor in Paul's day was wont to place one foot on the neck of the vanquished, our feet are shod with the preparation of a better victory. They're shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. By grace we conquer God's enemies, not to humiliate or belittle them, but to lift them to a position in the Epiranius, the highest heavens. There you have it in Ephesians 1 and 2. He's raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ. That's why we're trying to get them reconciled to God. And for this, beloved, we mustn't expect to be thanked not yet, any more than Paul was thanked for having preached nothing but good news to a doomed world. Indeed, the greatest enemy that this is, the greatest evidence, I should say, that this is the dispensation of Greece is the fact that the book of Acts closes with Paul, the ambassador of Greece, left sitting in a Roman dungeon awaiting execution. And what for? For no greater offense than for proclaiming good news to sinners everywhere, the good news of the grace of God. Well, if another nation 
were to cast our ambassador into prison tonight, we may be almost sure that our government would declare war on that nation tomorrow. We wouldn't stand for it. <clears throat> but in infinite grace, God leaves his ambassador on enemy territory to proclaim his loving offer of reconciliation. They're told to go and say, Oh, be ye reconciled to God, for God hath made him to be sin for us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Since we, God's ambassadors and soldiers, must bear what still remains of the sufferings of Christ, according to Colossians 1.24, the apostle bids us to be sure to take still another piece of armor. Number 4, verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith is indeed like a shield. It comes into good use under almost any circumstance, whether the fiery dart approaches from one side or another. From above or below, this shield is most essential and most effective. Ah, uh, what victories have been won by faith. Read Hebrews 11. God gives us a list there. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. They all obtained a good report by faith. And these victories have been won under the most varied circumstances. Let's take care then that above all, we take this valuable weapon into the battle with us. As we go into the conflict, let us recall some of the faithful promises of God to his soldiers. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And as we remember what he has said for and to and about us, we will have the strength to engage him. <clears throat> Our shield, thank God, is faith. Number 5, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet too protects a very vital part of the body. But why does he call it the helmet of salvation? Surely he doesn't refer to salvation from the penalty of sin. For those to whom he writes have already received that salvation and rejoice in it. Here we must take into consideration first the broad meaning given to salvation in Scripture and the context in which the word is here used. Paul is writing to those already gloriously saved, but he's writing about the Christians' warfare. Thus he refers not to salvation from sin's penalty here, but to deliverance from defeat. We are to go into the battle with the assurance that God will deliver us from defeat and bring us through to glorious victory. And beloved, he will if we take the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Such assurance is a great 
support to the mind as, as the battle rages. I'm sorry I did that. Uh, recall Paul's word to the Philippian believers in Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only let your conversation, your way of life, your conduct be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversary. And again in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be careful or care-filled over nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and listen, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That is, your heart will not fail. Your mind will not crack. Uh, you will not break down. You'll have the victory. Number six, verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is our only offensive weapon. It's all we should use and all we need to use in combating the false doctrines that Satan continues to introduce into the church. And it's a most effective weapon. For the Word of God is not paper and ink, merely. The Word of God is not such and such an addition of... No, no. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and a discern is a discerner of the thoughts and the motives, the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creation, creature, that is not manifest in God's sight. He's the writer of that powerful book. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the apostle says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not physical, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10.4 Many believers, though, are quick to proclaim the praises of the Word of God, but slow to use it, especially in defense of the truth. But the very fact that God places a sword in our hands must mean that he would have us use it. Why would he give it to, it, uh, to us otherwise? God didn't merely give us weapons to protect us. That's very nice. But he gave this one powerful offensive weapon that we might use it offensively. 
you know how I mean that, use it offensively, not in an offensive way, but use it being on the offensive as we might a battle to defeat our ancient foe. How sad is the state of the soldier, did I say soldier? Yes, soldier, that just doesn't want to fight. And in a cause like this, I've received letters of rebuke from people who are offended at our protests against false doctrine. Some have said, couldn't you all have gotten down together in prayer and asked the Lord to clear this up for you? Ah, Paul here does ask for prayer. Prayer for the soldiers of Christ who need courage. God didn't give us the sword that we might keep it in the scabbard and be soldiers on parades. Oh, that's great fun, soldiers on parade. There's a sword hanging at my side, and what a brave man I can be. Nobody's fighting me. Uh, no, he puts the shield in one hand and a sword in the other and bids us to go out and fight the good fight of the faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 12. And he did not expect others to do what he was not prepared to do himself. He was perhaps the greatest spiritual fighter of all times. He was out from one battle into another. But after it was all over, he could say what I hope we will be able to say. I have fought a good fight. May God forgive those who act as if, the, as if the Christian has no enemies, as though Satan would never attack us. God forgive them for using the Bible only as a garden from which they can pick pretty flowers, or as a loaded table from which they can have a delicious, sumptuous meal, or as a book of lovely or important sayings. God forgive them for, for failing to use this mighty book as the sword of the Spirit. God said that, I didn't. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, living and powerful and mighty through God to the pulling down of Satan's strongholds. Well, May God help us to use the sword as he intended us to use it, whatever the circumstances may be. Then and then alone will we be able to say with Paul, nay, in all these things, all the adversities and all the, the uh, enmity against God and his truth, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Finally, it should be preserved that in this panoply, this complete set of army, armor, nothing is provided for the back. Recently, I was absolutely flabbergasted, as they say. I was amazed to read an article by a writer who attempted to refute the idea that according to this passage, nothing is provided for the back. I wanted to send him a letter back and say, would you please read that passage again? It's as if he hadn't read it. 
To prove his point, what do you think he did? He used several pictures. Pictures of Roman soldiers who did have armor on the back. Well, that's some evidence. Obviously, the individual soldier of those days may have worn any armor he wanted. He might have had something for the back, but what does this prove? Does it not still remain that God, in providing his armor, his complete armor, provides nothing for the back? Read it and see. And must this not prove that we don't need armor for the back? What other reason would he leave us without it? So we would be defeated? We need no armor for the back because we're expected to stand and promise that by his grace we may. We don't need to run and, and fail. We, with his provision, we don't have to turn and flee. Instead of Napoleon's army in Russia, then when, when things went really hopeless, the officer ordered a drummer to beat a retreat. The drummer refused. And when the officer demanded to know why, the drummer explained that Napoleon had instructed him never to learn a retreat. <laughs> don't learn a retreat. Now, we, of course, don't place our faith in men of this world or earthly rulers. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. And providing us with all the protection we need, he bids us stand, withstand, stand, stand there for four times. Oh, God help us to put on our complete God-given armor and stand until we can look back with Paul and say, thank God. I have fought a good fight. <clears throat> I wonder how many here remember John Bulk. John Bulk of Fulton, Illinois. He was dying of cancer. We went to see him in a motel right near to the hospital he had been in. <coughs> he sat on a couch and said, Neil, sit here with me, will you? 